Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this fall is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll talk about how just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages everyone to come out and experience state parks during its centennial season, the 100th anniversary of the state park system, especially through service projects listed online at state parks, .oregon.gov. It's a way to enjoy the parks you love while doing activities like cleaning up trails and restoring wetlands. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about Oregon's state mushroom, the delectable Pacific golden chanterelle, including where to find it, how to cook it, and whether you can pick too many of them at once. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, today's podcast is going to be a mix of joy and melancholy because on the sad side, this is the literal last day for our outstanding outdoors intern, Skyla Patton. She's done so many things for us over the past six weeks, and we will miss her voice tremendously at the Statesman Journal and on this podcast. But the good news is that she's going out with a bang because we're going to talk about one of her favorite subjects mushrooms. I think it's fair to say it's definitely her favorite subject, not one of her favorite subjects. It's her favorite subject. And in particular, we are going to focus on Oregon's favorite fungi, the golden chanterelle. Skyla, I am both sad and happy. How are you feeling? Yeah, it's a bittersweet day for sure. I mean, I'm definitely ready for what I have been describing as sort of a brain break. But at the same time, I'm terrible at goodbyes of any sort. And this has been such a blast, Um, you know, whether it's fire reporting to working with just a really cool newsroom to you letting me completely and totally hyper focus on mushrooms. So it really has been such an awesome experience. Uh, The good news is that I am completely and totally hooked on outdoor reporting and I'm also pretty hard to get rid of. So I'm sure (laughs) that you'll see me around in the rugged world of journalism again before too long or even just running around in the woods in general. So let's get to the grand finale. I want to talk about some mushrooms. All right, so our topic is Oregon State Mushroom, and that is the golden chanterelle. And just saying the word chanterelle out loud makes me hungry. We are going to hit on a whole bunch of chanterelle-related topics, including where to find them, how many you're allowed to pick, how to cook them, why they're so tasty, so many things for this one mushroom. So, Skyla, for you as an avid mushroom person, what makes the chanterelle so special or unique in the family? of Oregon mushrooms? I think my experience with chanterelles is the same experience that a lot of mushroom enthusiasts have because the chanterelle was actually the mushroom that I first foraged. They are arguably the gateway mushroom of mushroom (laughs) hunting. We had a friend take us out to Yahats and then drive like so absurdly far into the woods and we get out of the car and he points up this super steep hill covered in ferns and trees and was like, okay, here we go. 
And I remember thinking like, this dude is crazy. But after a while of walking around in the woods, I totally remember like have this vivid memory in my head of stepping over this log and just seeing the golden color, you know, of a chanterelle of the corner out of my eye. And you bend down and pull out this beautiful, weird looking, earthy, smelly mushroom out of the dirt and you hold it up and everyone was just cheering like, yes, it's a chanterelle. You did it. And the rest was pretty much history. That was probably four or five years ago now. Chanterelles are super prolific in Oregon, hence their title of the Oregon State Mushroom. And I think because they're so beautiful and yummy and most importantly, abundant and easy to find, that the chanterelle just has a really special place in a lot of mushroom hunting hearts. That is a great way of putting it. And I've had I've had a similar experience. And yeah, it's just like it's it's such a rush when you see it. And you're like, that's it. That's the thing I've been looking for. I found it. It just feels like <laughs> such a, a fun victory. So let's start off with the mushroom itself. It's our state mushroom, as we've mentioned. It's delicious. Obviously, we love the chanterelle. But why does the chanterelle love us back and thrive in Oregon? And what's kind of the overarching range? Yeah. So first, the easy answer is because Oregon has the perfect climate pretty much throughout the state during late summer, early fall, which is super moist air and frequent rain combined with warm soil that isn't freezing over and over again at night. That pretty much describes the entirety of the Oregon coast and then also ropes in a lot of Oregon's older growth forest, the Cascade region. So as long as you're not going too crazy high in elevation, odds are you're going to be in that right environment just kind of by existing in the state of Oregon. The more sciencey side of that answer is because chanterelles actually have a super unique symbiotic relationship with trees. So specifically conifers, they literally cannot fruit without the presence of uh, trees like Douglas fir or Sitka spruces. And Oregon is definitely not lacking when it comes to conifer forests. It's pretty much the fruiting, the perfect fruiting ground for chanterelles, like the ultimate conditions that they would want to be in. Now, you stressed that there are many different types of chanterelles, including ones that you can pick almost year round. But what is the what is the peak season for going out and picking, you know, the Pacific golden chanterelle? And, you know, when when do they reach like apex season? Yeah. If you really know where to look or have some established patches that you frequent, chanterelles can pop up a lot throughout the year because we just have that weird Oregon weather where one day it's really hot and then the next day it's rainy and cold, which mushrooms of pretty much all genres tend to love. So that's cool. But for the chanterelles hit season, like when there are so many in the forest that it's almost overwhelming to realize it, that's definitely late September, early October kind of where we are right now, pretty much as soon as we start getting that consistent combo of drizzly days followed by warm evenings where those temperatures are only dropping to, you know, the 50s, maybe the 40s. So that soil is still nice and warm below the surface. You can even get good, I would say, at tracking the weather and comparing elevation. So as the season goes on and it gets too cold or too hot, you can kind of adjust where you're foraging to match those ideal conditions. Okay, so we're going to go through how to go out on your own little chanterelle expedition uh, a little bit later. But one of my favorite things about the story that uh, you were just going to publish is on this topic is the taste sensation of a chanterelle. Yeah, you even talked to a, a famous mushroom chef about chanterelles. So what can you tell us about the taste? Because I'm not really sure exactly how to describe them, 
other than they're tasty. I mean, they, they've got kind of notes of, of being earthy. They sort of taste, um, you know, like a little rich dirt. There's forest and arid. If, for, to me, they sort of taste like Oregon tastes, if that makes any sense. But how would you describe the taste? And what did you learn about this? Popularly, I think chanterelles are often described flavor-wise as being kind of nutty, peppery, sometimes even a little fruity. Um, it's really hard to get away from that description of mushrooms being earthy anytime you're dealing with fungus, so I totally get that. I did get to talk to Christopher, who is the head chef and owner of the Joel Palmer House, which literally specializes in cooking mushrooms and foraged foods. They've been doing it for quite hundreds of years. Um, described it as being essentially one of the lighter mushrooms, as in it isn't super dense or meaty, like a morel, for example, which is almost like eating a piece of bacon. <laughs> he filled me in on how each specific chanterelle, like whether it's older or fresher in the season, or even the different subspecies, like a golden chanterelle versus a white chanterelle, can have a totally different flavor profile and texture, so it can vary a lot throughout the year. Baseline, chanterelles are a pretty palatable mushroom that can either be made the center of the dish, like you are eating chanterelles with something else, or it can be a really nice accent to vegetables or proteins like pork and fish. One of the meals that Christopher had described to me that I just thought sounded crazy was chanterelles with a sturgeon, which I've never tried before, but that just sounds like it would be good. Well, I definitely direct people to check out your story too, because you mentioned a whole bunch of different dishes, because honestly, like I've used chanterelles in only two ways and it's you know frying them up with pasta with like uh garlic and some onions i think that's like the the standard way that people pretty much always do them especially at first and then i like to put them on pizza <laughs> so that's that's the only way i've ever used them so but they're much more diverse than that according to your story yeah it's there's so many different options that you can have with mushrooms of all types but chanterelles just have that diversity to them where you can really make them the centerpiece or you can kind of, you know, sprinkle them in with whatever else you're eating. I do have to expose myself a little bit here for the sake of transparency. I've avoided it thus far, but I'm going to do it for really good reason. I am one of a select group of mushroom hunters who, please bear with me here, people listening, does not actually enjoy eating mushrooms, which I know is insane and everyone always loses their mind about it. <laughs> It's a texture thing. I swear I try every kind of edible mushroom we get our hands on just to test it out, see the flavor profile. Thus far, nothing has really rocked my world yet. But I'm exposing myself on that front because I think it's important to let people listening know that there is so much to enjoy about mushroom hunting beyond just eating them. Like, I always brag that I am having the most fun when foraging because I am totally enchanted by everything that we find, whether or not you can eat it. And that's really cool. Uh, but to answer the initial question of like, what kind of dishes can we try with this? I do really want to try a pickled chanterelle, which I just recently learned about from Christopher. They put them in martinis. And I think that sounds amazing. They put the, a pickled chanterelle in a martini. Yeah, it's like a garnish. Okay. A mushroom garnish for a mar. Wow. All right. That's, <laughs> I don't really know what to do with that. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we've established here, you know, at least for those of us who do like eating mushrooms. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I never liked mushrooms at all like that, like growing up, you know, um, I didn't have a foraging family, really. And so we'd buy, you know, occasionally mushrooms just from the grocery store, like your standard, like the little white ones or whatever, occasionally portobellos. I never liked mushrooms at all. I didn't like them on anything. I didn't want my parents to, to give them to me. But then 
I did have chanterelles for the first time. I cut them up, you know, put them with that butter, fried them up with, you know, a little garlic. And it just, it definitely changed my perception of mushrooms completely. So I feel like we've almost had like opposite experience. Like they, I didn't like mushrooms and chanterelles made me like them. And that, that does extend to morels, but Anyway, okay, so we, we've talked about chanterelles. They're cool to some of us. They're really tasty. But I'll be honest, like one of the things I've worried about over the years, and I've talked to food writers about this, is over-harvest. There's just so many things from fish to, you know, other species that humans tend to over-harvest. It's bad for the environment. So what's what's the status there? Can I feel okay about picking chanterelles in terms of its environmental impact and the continued propagation of chanterelles? Yeah, a great question. And honestly, a great thing to be thinking about when you're foraging anything. We always want to, you know, be present about how we are impacting these spaces that we're in. This is a question that was just answered relatively recently, thanks to this awesome group of researchers and volunteers with the Oregon Cantharellus Project. Cantharellus is the scientific genus of chanterelles, just as a clarification there. Over the course of a decade, they essentially tested this concept of over-harvesting, as well as flushing out some other questions like cutting versus plucking controversy that we will get to a little later on. Essentially, the study demonstrated that over time, patches of chanterelles that were in fact being harvested actually had a higher production rate over time by at least a little bit than the ones that weren't being picked at all. So at least in the short term, I'm happy to report we definitely don't have to worry about extinction via harvesting. But it's also important to add that with most mushroom science and studies, this information and data is super, super new. So we really will have to wait and kind of see what long-term research demonstrates in order to know that for sure. Okay, well, that is really good news. And it feels like we're on good footing to head out into the forest. We talk all the time about doing your homework on this podcast before just heading outside. So for chanterelles, I guess the first thing I want to know beforehand is where are we going to think about going and how are we going to think about doing it? So what does your average chanterelle adventure look like, Skyla? Yeah. So depending on the weather, our go-to is usually chanterelle hunting anywhere along the Oregon coast because it has some of the most accessible spots that we frequent and you also get a bonus drive to the beach out of it, which is definitely a win. So without giving too much away, as is the custom in the foraging community, the best bet really is to pick a forest service road that kind of takes you into the coastal forests off of the 101 and drive a little ways up until that environment matches what you want for chanterelles. We usually have a pretty good group with us because the passion spreads quickly. So we always have friends or family with us. And so the personal strategy is to sort of fan out from wherever you park the car in a sort of a C shape so that the most amount of ground is covered, eyes on the ground, that sort of a thing. Everybody is kind of fanning out and looking collectively. This is going to sound silly, but another strategy to help kick off any foraging experience is literally looking at photos of chanterelles or whatever other mushroom you're hunting for. Like seriously, take a guidebook or a pamphlet out into the woods with you and study those photos in the car before you head out. Really look at those pictures. What colors are you looking for? What shapes are they um, in those photos? You know, where are those mushrooms popping out in the pictures? Are they by trees? Are they in the duft? Are they by stumps? Because studying that genuinely will help train your brain to know what to look for and kind of get in what I like to call the mushroom zone. The mushroom zone. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be in the mushroom zone more often. (laughs) Okay. So what type of gear should you be bringing and why? I mean, it sounds kind of, this sounds sort of like an off trail 
hike for the most part where you're just like a little more focused but what about like carrying you know the mushrooms and stuff like that so what what kind of gear should you be bringing and why yeah, I would say more often than not, mushroom hunting will take you off trail. If you are newer, and I talk about this a little bit in the written story, there are some alternatives where you could kind of start on a hiking trail to get your feet wet. But for the most part, you are going to be traversing through, you know, just the straight up woods. So thinking about what you need to have on your person is really important. A few things for the basics. You're going to need something to carry your chanterelles in, which best case scenario is going to be a mesh bag or a basket. You can even DIY it, take a bucket, drill some little holes into the bottom. Essentially what we're doing there with those bags of choice is you are not only collecting your mushrooms and preserving them, but you're allowing those spores to continue spreading and dropping even as you're walking around. So make sure you avoid closed off bags or anything plastic that might rough up or damage the mushrooms as you're moving around. You'll also need a knife of your choosing. A pocket knife works totally fine, but there are some really cool specialized foraging knives online that have a nice curve to them, which can kind of help get into that base of the mushroom. And they usually even have a brush attached also, which is really convenient for cleaning while you are actively out in the woods. This might go without saying, but you definitely should have really good shoes on, preferably closed-toed, like hiking boots or your sturdiest of sturdy tennis shoes, just to protect your feet in whatever kind of area you're walking around. You don't want to have naked toes. Beyond that, there are a few things that you should have, like one, if not multiple, field guides of your choice. You want to make sure that you can double confirm those identifications and learn about the different kinds of fungus out there as you're finding it. A compass or your choice of a GPS system is also key just to make sure you aren't getting needlessly lost. You do not want to be that person who has to have search and rescue come hunt for you instead of the mushrooms. And lastly, depending on the weather, we usually have an extra pair of clothes in the car, uh, maybe some hand warmers for your pocket. But that's kind of just on being prepared in general whenever you go outside. I'm Travis Joseph. I grew up exploring Oregon's forests, mountains, lakes, and rivers with my family. Today, I lead the American Forest Resource Council. My love of the outdoors inspires me to advocate for better stewardship of our public lands and natural resources. At A4C, we value protecting Oregon's forests and the benefits they provide to all, clean air and water, healthy wildlife, top-notch recreation, and renewable climate-friendly wood products. We're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The last two years have been tough on the beaches and trails of the Tillamook Coast. With more people flocking to the area in search of outdoor activities comes a spike in the appearance of trash along roads, trails, and beaches. Be part of the solution and make a point at helping curb this problem. Dispose of your trash in designated receptacles and practice leave no trace visitation. Make it a habit to bring a trash bag along in your hike or beach walk and pick up at least three pieces of trash along your way. It may seem like a drop in the bucket, but every little bit makes a difference. Learn more about how you can help by visiting www.tillamookcoast.com and downloading the Tillamook Coast Pledge. You can help preserve the legacy of beautiful trails and beaches for generations to come. Okay, so we've got our location, we've got our plans figured out, we've thought about the the gear that we're going to bring. 
Another critical piece is to think about what's actually allowed. So are you allowed to pick a certain amount, number of chanterelles for free on public lands? Uh, I think, you know, you reported it's different depending on what land you're on. So lay that out for me a little bit. Yes, super important. You have to make sure that you're foraging on appropriate grounds, both for the safety of that environment, but also to make sure you don't get fined for like a wild amount of money for picking mushrooms in the wrong spot. I think the spendiest fine that I've seen threatened is like $5,000 for having any mushrooms on your person when you're in theory not supposed to. They don't play around. It's, it's, it's no joke. Yeah, for good reason. So let's lay out the basics and I will start with the absolutely nots since that's the easiest. So first of all, national monuments, national parks, always and forever going to be a hard no. No foraging, no disruption of that landscape at all. That totally checks out. Private property, of course, is an obvious no, as well as any officially closed areas like fire closures or things like that. There is a cool app I will plug that a lot of foragers have kind of commandeered. It's called OnX. So not Onyx like the stone, but O-N, the letter X. It's typically used for hunting game, but foragers have kind of commandeered it as an app because it really lays out the area maps and you can use them offline and it will show you specifically who owns each plot of land. So that's a really nifty tool for mushroom hunting. Getting to the permissible areas, you can forage in national forests and BLM owned lands for free. You are allowed to collect a gallon of edible chanterelles per person per day. And in state forests, it's actually one gallon per vehicle per day. In Oregon state parks and other recreational areas, it's a much heftier five gallons per person per day and actually includes all edibles like other mushrooms and berries and stuff. So that's really cool. And if that was hard to follow, make sure you check out that online story because I have it all mapped out as well as links, you know, to where you can find this extra information. Okay, so real quick a gallon of mushrooms per person per day for a lot of the places. Like I think the majority of the hunting goes on, on forest service and BLM lands. Like that's, that's fair, right? Absolutely. I think people tend to hand out, head out to kind of those national forest areas, not only because it's easier, you know, to be following those rules, but it's also just the most accessible space. And the largest, I mean, forest service, national forest land is kind of the bulk of Western Oregon. And then there's BLM kind of mixed in, in there. <laughs> so, I mean, state parks are kind of few and far between, especially for it, but they, you know, they do exist. Let me ask you this. What is like, give me a, what's a good visual for a gallon? I mean, is it easy to, to sort of measure while you're out there? Um, like how, how do you, how, how can you conceptualize what a gallon looks like? Yeah, it. It's kind of a hard answer because it really does depend on the t kind of mushrooms that you're harvesting. So even with chanterelles specifically, if you're going out really earlier in the season, you're going to be getting a lot of what we call button mushrooms, where the chanterelles are maybe, you know, one, two inches tall. They're very round, very dense, just starting to puff out, you know, from the duft. Um the sizing of a gallon of those kinds of chanterelles versus later in the season where they're these massive, you know, huge flower looking mushrooms is going to be totally different. So our go-to foraging bags that we got as a gift are actually roughly two gallons each. And my partner and I tend to have those strapped onto our backs. And then we have baskets for friends that are roughly about a half gallon. And that's if you're literally filling these containers up with whatever size of mushroom you have. So it's really a rough estimate most of the time. 
Um, if we're collecting with a plan to kind of sell to stores or something with that commercial permit, which really doesn't happen very often, we usually weigh those out with produce scales and are a little bit more organized about it. But most of the time we're out there for fun. Okay. Well, I mean, one thing we've talked about this kind of that's for free. But one fun thing is that if you really do want more, and plenty of people would want more than just a gallon of mushrooms, it's really not that many, you can get a permit pretty easily and get quite a few more. So how does that work? How much are permits? And then how much can you get? Permits are a must for sure. If you really want to bring in that mushroom haul, or for me personally, if you're just going out often enough that it kind of makes the process easier to have that paperwork on you and not think about it. It's definitely something you need to do beforehand. I'll start by saying that. Do not go out into the forest and expect to receive that permit the same day that you're foraging, just because a lot of the time the ranger office will be closed and then you'll be out of luck and already out in the woods and that will be sad. Permits across the board can be obtained from the district office that you plan to forage in. So, for example, a lot of that coastal range near Florence, Yahats, Newport, that's going to be the Wildport Ranger office. And there's a whole list linked for the different offices on the story version of this conversation, too, for easy reference. Permits are $2 a day, 10 days minimum, or you can also get a full year for $100, which, in my opinion, is the way to do it. So it's done. You don't have to worry about it for 12 months. And then how much, how many chanterelles would that allow me to get? Like if I'm starting at a gallon, like, does that bump me up to, I don't know, 10 gallons or how much? Yeah. So if I understand correctly, once you have that permit, you are unlimited. Um, on paper, you could in theory go out and forage until the cows come home, you know, until you're filling up your vehicle with these mushrooms. Um, I think people tend to not do that, of course, not only because it's exhausting, but because the foraging community tends to kind of have that sense of you want to make sure that you are leaving mushrooms for others when you can. Um, but yeah, if you have that com commercial permit, which just to clarify, that is what you are purchasing. There is not a separate permit for like people who want to sell them versus people who just want to collect a ton of them. Um, so it's the same permit. It pretty much just on paper gives you the freedom to, you know, go out and harvest without concern of, you know, what your quantity is at the end of the day. Okay. Okay. So I should say that you've got your gear, you've got your plan. If you want a permit, you're going to get that and you're headed out. So as you're driving or hiking, what should be, what should you be looking for to spot chanterelles and what kind of terrain is going to give you the highest chances for finding them? So, you know, say you've already gone, you've, you've been driving up 101, you've headed into the coast range or you've headed over to the coast range from the valley either way. So you're on the forest service road, you're driving along, it's a little bumpy, it's a little gravelly and stuff like that. Like, what are you looking for to, you know, find spots that might be good? So in terms of environment, you're going to be looking for a lot of ferns, a lot of conifer trees with that really nice canopy cover that provides shade on the ground. And then, of course, somewhere safe enough to walk around so that you are not scaling a mountain or anything sketchy like that. Please don't endanger yourself for the sake of the mushrooms. You want to see a really nice duft on the ground, whether that's moss or pine needles or just forest debris, because the mushrooms really thrive in that sort of messy and disturbed environment on the forest floor. Beyond that, it's going to sound silly again, but I swear this is real. Once you start foraging and get a sense for the area and the places that you're going, you also start to develop a sort of sixth sense for the mushrooms. Like, I always find myself telling new foragers that are out with us to feel it out. Does this feel like an area that fungus might like to live? If you were a mushroom, would you enjoy living here? 
it's a little woo-woo, but demonstrably it has worked in the past. So pay attention to your own gut and make sure you get those mushroom sensors out there. Okay. But you are kind of looking for that closed canopy primarily with just like a little sunlight coming in. Because I'm thinking about places in the coast range, you know, that I, that I've gone a lot. And there's sort of like, there's the open, like, you know, clear cut areas or like, you know, third or fourth growth or something like that. That's pretty open. And then you get into the slightly older stuff where it's mostly shaded. There's a lot of ferns around. So it's the, it's the second of those two, correct? Yeah. The latter that you just described is definitely perfect for chanterelles. Those clear cut areas can be great for other kinds of mushrooms. Like for example, morels and oyster mushrooms really enjoy disturbed ground and fallen trees that often pop up in those kind of clear cut spaces. But for chanterelles specifically, you want to shoot for that kind of fern gully environment where there's a little bit of light trickling down from the trees, but there's a really nice shaded canopy. There's some obvious moisture, you know, in the plant life around you. That's what you're shooting for. Okay. So like, like sword ferns are a good indicator species that maybe you're, you're on, on the right path. I mean, there's a lot of sword ferns out there though. Yeah. Chanterelles love ferns. Like absolutely. Even quite literally getting up underneath those ferns and lifting up those fronds, especially the ones that have gotten kind of rotten on the bottom, um, there's a really good chance that if you pull those up, there's going to be some living at the base of that fern. Okay, so I know that this is a controversial topic, and I applaud you for even being willing to take it on because uh, I don't even know how to describe how heated this gets, but it gets pretty darn heated out on the message boards. But I have to ask, because especially as like, you know, somebody who's just done this, you know, you just don't know. And, you know, you find your chanterelle, you're looking at it, you're like, oh, I can almost taste it. It's going to be great. Do you cut or pull? So how do you, how do you break that down? Oh, the mushroom mushrooming community loves this one. And it's ridiculous how heated people can get over this decision. But I understand that it comes from a root place of concern for the mushrooms, or at least that's the most positive way to spit it. So I'm going to go with that. I'll give the answer that we have thus far from science and research first, which is that it literally does not matter. And I know people are going to be so mad. I can feel it already, but it's true. Research has shown thus far, both from the Oregon Cantharella study project I mentioned earlier and in lots of other studies, that there really isn't a huge impact in any direction from cutting the mushroom with a knife or pulling it right out of the ground. So choose your own adventure at this point. For me personally, I make that decision based on the specific mushroom in front of me. If it's easier to get the body of the mushroom by pulling it out, you know, I will do that. Or sometimes I cut it instead because I know there's going to be a spider in that mushroom hole and I'm not sticking my hand in there. So it's really situational. Kind of just do whatever feels best for you as a forager. All right. So what are some other things to, to think about when you're out there? We've covered pretty much all of it from the permits to where to go to, you know, what's ethical to how to cut in all these different things. So what have we what have we forgotten in the art of finding the chanterelle? What other things should we consider? I mean, obviously, finding edible mushrooms is awesome and always going to be one of the cooler parts about foraging. But for me, I really genuinely enjoy the dedicated time of just breathing in the woods. It's so gorgeous. These areas that you will find looking for chanterelles, sometimes it really feels like you have just totally left planet Earth and are in this new magical place. So take the time, you know, to sit down on the moss and appreciate where you are and especially the people that you're with. You know, people usually go out in groups, whether it's foraging parties or your family or your friends. 
I think I enjoy watching other people find mushrooms for the first time the most. I mean, their faces really light up and it just is super amazing to share the excitement that I feel with other people. That's a really special process. And the last thing I think I want to add, because I could go on for a really long time about chanterelles, but the last thing I think I want to add is how crucial it is that we are entering these natural spaces with respect and foraging at like a peak sense of responsibility and care for the environment, whether that's harvesting an appropriate amount of mushrooms for your own purposes, picking up trash you see, or obviously not leaving any of your own trash behind. It's so important that we as mushroom hunters are playing that pivotal role of being a sort of steward of the forest and treating it with just the utmost level of respect and love. And that's just what we have to do to continue being able to get that out there and do what we love and find these mushrooms. All right. Well, we've been talking with our excellent outdoors interns, Skyla Patton. Skyla, thank you so much for everything you just talked about and everything you reported for us. We are going to miss you here on the Explore Oregon podcast and at the Statesman Journal. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Zach. It's been a blast. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com slash explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.